Well, hello, everyone, and welcome uh, to worship. You know, uh, it's a really risky thing when airplanes fly. But after all, that, that's what they were made for, right? Hey, do you know when most accidents happen, the airlines will confirm this, uh, it's when airplanes are flying you know, usually uh, it's when they're taking off or landing, yeah, but they're, but they're flying. So, when you think about it, the safest place for an airplane to be is sitting right on the tarmac where it can't get into too much trouble. But that's also the most useless place for a plane to be because aircraft were made to fly. Now, in a similar way, our lives were designed to run with risk. Oh, no, not foolish risk, not stupid risk where we're tempting God, not, not risks that are of our own choosing as we do our own thing, but risks that are within the will of God as we follow our Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to study a little bit about that today. But the truth of the matter is that while that's where he wants us to be at times, uh, within ourselves, left to ourselves, we would rather often be on the ground where the aircraft will never get into trouble, but honestly, uh, never do much good either. So let's unpack this story today. It's found in John chapter 6. If you have a Bible of your own, you can find it there. We're going to begin in a few moments in verse 16, John chapter 6. But let's see what we can learn from this fifth miraculous sign. First of all, I want to talk to you a moment about these disciples and where they were. Now, the where, if you're taking notes, you might want to jot some of these things down. The where is they were actually in a storm. Let's look at the full account as John records it. In his gospel, chapter 6, beginning in verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now, it was dark, and Jesus had not joined them. A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed three or three and a half miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were terrified. But he said to them, It is I, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. Now, think about the combination of factors here it's dark, it's late, they were alone, there's a strong wind blowing, and the sea. This lake, it's called a sea and a lake, so don't let that confuse you. The waters in it are very rough. Not the greatest combo of factors. When you add to that the fact that these disciples were exhausted. <coughs> Last week, we studied about the feeding of the 5,000. That happened the very day before. They've not had any sleep yet. And so Jesus uh, sends them across the lake 
across the Sea of Galilee. He gets them in this boat, headed toward Capernaum. They've now been rowing for several hours. They're probably physically exhausted and emotionally at the end of their rope. Now, Galilee was known for unusually ferocious storms. Here's why. It's well below sea level, 682 feet to be exact, below sea level. And cool air makes its way through the mountain passes and ravines to the north where the Golan Heights are, and it clashes with this warm, moist air that is over the Sea of Galilee. And experts tell us that the storms on Galilee can be even more ferocious than storms on the Mediterranean, even though the Mediterranean is much, much larger. Also keep in mind that some of these guys we're talking about here were professional fishermen. They were not novices when it came to water. Some of you Love Lake George. And some of you, because you either grew up on the lake or you boat there every summer, you know Lake George like the back of your hand. Well, that's what Galilee was like for these guys. They knew it well, and yet in spite of all that, this storm came up with such unexpected and sudden ferocity that it unnerved them. So here they are, stuck in a storm, scared out of their minds. That's where they were. Now we're going to come back to that in just a few moments because to make this personal, that's where some of you find yourself today. You're stuck in a storm. Life has blown up something unexpected. Perhaps even just a week ago, you never dreamed, you never dreamed in a million years that you'd be in the middle of the kind of storm that you find yourself in today. I want you to know you're not here by accident. God has a word for you. His word is always personal. It's also always profound, and God has a word to speak to you today, no matter what storm you're in. But let's go on. They were in a storm, but secondly, let's consider the issue of why. Why they were there. Why is always very important. And for the followers of Jesus Christ, we understand that God always has a design. He's always working, Jesus taught us, and God's word teaches us that he works in the midst of all things for our good. So that's encouraging to know. But on the surface, this doesn't look real good. I mean, here they've been rowing for several hours. They're probably getting on each other's nerves. I would imagine some bickering going on between them as they're so exhausted. And when the storm reaches the peak of its fury, the text says here that they were three to three and a half miles out in the lake. That would put them right in the center of the lake, right in the epicenter of the storm. And so I think we need to kind of pause here and work on our storm theology for a moment. Let me ask you, Christians, do you have a storm theology? You'd better. Some Christians, I find, just don't have a very good storm theology, and when it comes to the storms and the hardships of life, theology gets all sloppy and all screwy, okay? We need a good storm theology. So let's talk about that for a moment. I'm going to suggest to you, first of all, 
that Jesus permits storms. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, Jesus said, He, that is God the Father, causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Now, what does that mean to you? I'll tell you what I take away from that. I don't have any studies on this. I can't prove it to you statistically through some survey. But uh, my guess is statistically, Christians have accidents at about the same rate that non-Christians do, roughly. My guess would be that statistically, Christians get cancer just about as often as non-Christians In fact, one of the great teachers I respect, Stephen Brown, a great Presbyterian minister, says he believes that for every pagan that gets cancer, God allows a Christian to get cancer just so the world can see the difference. I don't know if he's right, but that's what he says. And I can tell you this one for sure, Christians and non-Christians, statistically speaking, die at exactly the same rate. It never changes. One out of every one, dies. So we need to understand, we just need to begin with this, lest there be disillusionment along the way, because there's so much sloppy theology. Uh, Jesus said, because we live in a broken, sinful world that's still dealing with all the effects and the residual chaos from the fall and all the compounding years of that, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. Jesus permits storms. The second observation I would make if we're getting our storm theology kind of straightened out is that Jesus, this is going to be a stretch for some of you, I want to warn you, Jesus sometimes provides storms. Ooh. Sometimes the storm is his idea. In fact, if you study the Gospels carefully, in both Matthew and Mark's account of this, they're very clear. It says that Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side. In other words, this was his idea, and he had a weather app on his iPhone. He knew the forecast. He knew exactly what he was sending them into, and he did it anyway. He sent them into a storm. Why would Jesus do that? It's because sometimes it's only in the crises of life, these situations where our back is against the wall and we feel overwhelmed, it's sometimes only then that we learn the most important lessons. Those become fabulous, teachable moments. So you see, the Scripture speaks an awful lot about storms. Let's talk a little more about this. Uh, One of my favorite verses is, uh, or, or chapters in the Bible, is Psalm 42. I I rehearse it and kind of meditate on it at least once a week. It begins with those classic words, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God, and so on and so on and so on. And in verse 7 here, the psalmist, who's in a tough situation apparently, says, deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls, all your waves and breakers 
have swept over me. These are the words here. Uh, They're poetic words, obviously, but they're the words of a man describing the turmoil he's going through. He's in anguish, and he's describing that. And he's trying to navigate through the tough times of life and figure this out. And then he says in this verse, verse 3, my tears have been my food day and night while men say to me all day long, where is your God? You ever had anybody do that? Hey, you're a believer. Why, what has your God done for you lately? Hey, you're going through this storm. Why doesn't he stop it? And he's not stopping it. And so the psalmist says in verse 5, Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? So he's churning inside. He's asking himself these probing questions. He's trying to figure out his storm theology, okay? And suddenly, it dawns on him. Maybe, just maybe, God orchestrated this. As he says in verse 7, your waves and breakers have swept over me. He realizes that Jesus, the Lord, not only permits storms, but he sometimes provides them. Isaiah writes in chapter 51, For I am the Lord your God who churns up the sea so that its waves roar. He says, I'm the one who does this. Job certainly experienced a storm. Now, we all know that Satan was behind that and that God allowed Satan to do certain things. But as Job goes through that horrendous ordeal, and by the way, I don't know, whatever storm you're going through, I honestly don't know of anyone who suffered as deeply as Job. I mean, he lost his children, he lost his wealth, he lost his health, he has the oozing scabs on his body. Even his wife says to him, buddy, you're so miserable, why don't you just curse God and die? His crazy friends come to him trying to comfort him, apparently, but their words only condemn him and put him in more anguish. But look at what he says in Job 30. You, talking to God, you snatch me up and drive me before the wind. You toss me about in the storm. See, he's praying to God. He's saying, look, I'm in this storm and you put me here. You're doing something, he begins to realize. And then Job comes to the realization in chapter 40, verse 6, when it says, then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. Friends, it's an awesome experience when we realize that the very storms we're in that we detest so much become God's mouthpiece. And that God actually speaks to us out of the storm. He permits them. He provides them. Third, I would suggest to you that Jesus protects in storms. Notice the preposition used. I'm not saying he protects us from storms, although sometimes he may. In fact, can I suggest a glorious thought to you? (laughs) I know sometimes Jesus stills the storm and sometimes he does, and I, yes. But I'm using the preposition in here. He protects us in the storm. 
But one of the most joyful thoughts I know is that I believe, I can't prove this, I've just got a hunch that when we get to heaven one day, believers, and God pulls back the curtain and rolls the film on our life and allows us, get this, he's going to allow us to see all of the times he protected us and we didn't have a clue. That's going to be a joyful moment. And there's going to be a lot of them. When he was actually there, putting a shield up, sending an angel who are God's messengers, protecting us in some way. You say, my goodness, but lots of bad things. But you'd be amazed at how many times God's protected you. I believe that's going to be one of the greatest realizations of heaven. Where were they? In a storm. Why were they there? Jesus sent them there. Third, I want us to consider what they saw, verse 19. When they had rowed three or three and a half miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were terrified. Matthew's gospel gives the detail. This was in the fourth watch of the night. The way Hebrews counted time, that was between 3 and 6 a.m., and they're terrified. They think it's a ghost. They cry out in fear. Now think about this with me. They're in the middle of the night, in the middle of the lake, in the middle of a storm, and now they're in the middle of a nightmare. They're scared out of their mind. <laughs> Have you ever been there? Say, brother, I'm there today. Let me give a testimony. I can tell you, I know what they're going through. I know what it's like. I hear you. But Jesus does something right now, and I hope you're trekking here because this is, a, woo, this is about to get very exciting, what he's about to do. He's about to do something here that makes all the difference. Verse 20 reads, but he said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. Now, that's a good translation. It really is. If your Bible says that or something similar to that, it's a wonderful English translation. But here's one of those unusual times when we lose just a little bit with the translation. The Greek text here actually reads that Jesus said to them, I am. Now, those of you who are Bible students will immediately be going back, right? You'll be going back to the book of Exodus in your mind when you hear that. And you'll remember, that's exactly how the Lord identified himself with Moses at the burning bush, right? I am that I am. We've seen it on the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston a million times, right? I am that I am. We're going to be so shocked when we get to heaven and realize that God has an Irish tenor voice. I'm telling you right now. We're going to be so shocked when we realize that. But he says, I am, therefore don't be afraid. You say, you got to be kidding me. These guys have lots of reasons to be afraid. But Jesus is giving them a good reason not to be. He's walking on the water. He wanted them to see, catch this, that the very thing that was threatening to be over their heads was under his feet. Now, I want you to kind of get that picture in your mind, if you will. What a beautiful picture it is. 
the source of their fear, these violent waves crashing over their boat, ready to sink their boat and send it to the bottom, those very waves were under the feet of Jesus. So why be afraid? Now, there's a glorious, and I mean a glorious theological principle here. I could give you many verses that show it. I'm just going to give you two, just two, for the sake of time. This is a principle taught throughout Scripture. The first one that I want us to see is 1 Corinthians 15. Paul teaches this very principle there. It says, for he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy Catch this now, see it. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. What an interesting statement. This says that through the resurrection of, and by the way, that's what the whole 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians is about, so that's the context. Through the resurrection of Jesus, Catch this now. Anything which threatens to be over your head today is under his feet. Now, I know you want to be a nice, calm, and subdued people, and and I appreciate that. But I tell you, if you ever get goosebumps over theological things, this is a moment when we ought to have goosebumps. Anything which threatens to defeat you and me today has itself already been defeated by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Let me show you one other verse. Ephesians 1.22, Paul here, speaking about the implications of the resurrection and the effects of what it means for our Christian lives, says, and God placed all things under his feet. Dear friends, This is either a bunch of theological gobbledygook that we just kind of sit back and and applaud and go, isn't that wonderful? Praise the Lord. Wasn't that a nice church service? Let's go home and live life normally. Or, or, and I believe it's the or, or this is one of the most sublime truths in all of Scripture, and it is utterly, and I mean utterly, liberating. This has meaning for you and me, as we're about to see in our final point. So let's look at it, and let's unpack it. What they did. We've seen so far where they were. They were in a storm. Why were they there? Jesus sent them there. What did they see? They saw that what threatened to be over their heads was actually under his feet. So what did they do about it? Here's where it gets really, really interesting. Mark's gospel and John's gospel, I don't know why, can ask the Lord this day, one day in heaven, but they leave out a most remarkable detail of the story that Matthew includes. So if you want to turn in your Bible to Matthew right now, Matthew 14, that's what I'm going to spend a little time in. Matthew records not just Jesus walking on the water, but he records Peter walking on the water. Matthew 14, 27. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. And catch this now. Simon Peter says, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. You gotta love Peter right here. 
He's going beyond us. Well, isn't that a sublime theological truth? What threatens to be over my head is under his feet. Praise the Lord. Wasn't this a nice church service? Let's go home and live life normally. He gets that, wow, this is liberating. Could this, could this have anything to do with me? Now, let's acknowledge that sometimes we don't do what Peter is doing right here. Sometimes we've got to admit that in our Christian theology and our Bible study, it's all transcendent and wonderful, and it's all up there and out there, but it never gets down here and makes a difference, and that's a problem. Peter is saying here, Lord, let me come and share your victory. Well, since everything's under your feet, which the things that seem to threaten me, you've already conquered, they're under your feet. Hey, let me get in on this. And in verse 29, come, he said. Jesus invites him out. Now, we know from the rest of the Gospels that Peter was a fairly impetuous person, right? He was often doing things and thinking later. He was saying things and thinking about it later. And I've often wondered if Peter regretted asking Jesus to call him out on the water. Bid me to come to you on the water. But no matter how he felt about it, verse 29 goes on, then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. Wow. Don't you know? Don't you know that took a lot of courage? I wish we had a video. Why wasn't somebody running their home video camera? Why didn't somebody take their phone out and video this and send it on social media? Wouldn't it be cool to have a video of that? We don't know if he did laps around the boat. We don't know if he giggled with delight and joy because this is obviously a new experience. We don't know if he started singing Beach Boys song and doing songs and doing surfing motion. We don't know. We don't know if he said, boys, the water's fine, come on in. But what we do know is no matter how long he was out there or, or what exactly he did, we do know, verse 30 says, but when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. I've always been struck by that line, when he saw the wind, because it's a little oxymoronic, right? I mean, you can't see wind. It's like saying, I see you've got an invisible fence here. I mean, what, that's oxymoronic. How, how can you see the wind? You can see effects of wind, but you, you can't see the wind. What this means is that Peter took his attention away from Christ. He began to look at the problem again, and fear gripped him, and he began to sink. Did Jesus say, Peter, dude, you're too big to walk on the water, man. What were you thinking? Lose a few pounds, dude. Buy yourself a pair of flippers next time. Come again and join me in six months. No, of course not. Jesus knew this situation was impossible. And no matter how little Peter was or how big his flippers, he couldn't walk on the water. Verse 31, immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why, 
Why did you doubt? Many people historically have seen that as a scolding thing. I'd like to kind of challenge that a little bit. I think it was more out of compassion, urging Peter, come on, let's learn a principle here. Let's learn a principle here. Peter, your problem is not the storm. Your problem is you stop trusting in my sufficiency. Mark's gospel is amazing in the detail it gives. It says, then he climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down. They were completely amazed for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hard. Now, if you're in the custom of marking in your Bible, I'm gonna make a suggestion that you underline or circle that phrase about the loaves. That's referring to the miracle that had happened the day before. You say, but pastor, what in the world does that have to do with this storm and what's going on here? It has everything to do with it. It's the whole point of what Jesus wanted them to get. (coughs) The whole point. Let me put it to you this way. Brothers and sisters in Christ, it's easier for us often to learn a practice than to learn a principle. God wants us to learn these dynamic principles he gives, and he wants us to be able to apply them in all of life's situation where there are situations where they're appropriate. But, but usually, we just kind of learn a practice. <coughs> the day before, Jesus had wanted them to learn a principle, but they didn't learn a principle. They only learned a practice. Here's the practice they learned. I'll tell you what, we know one thing, we're really growing as disciples, and if we ever see 5,000 hungry people again and we don't have any food, we know exactly what to do. But they didn't learn the principle that when your back is against the wall and you've got a challenge that's over your head, you've got to rely on the sufficiency of God. That's the principle. It doesn't matter where you're needing to feed 5,000 people, or you're in the middle of a storm. The principle is the same. You lean back and you say, thank you. Thank you that you are sufficient for this. God, this is beyond me, but I put it in your capable hands, and I rest my head back on the pillow of your providence, and I say, thank you. Peter did that for a while. But then he began to sink. He hadn't really learned the principle. Mark says it's because their hearts were hardened. Did you see that detail? What in the world does that mean? That means that what they were hearing and learning, they were not translating into daily life. That's what it means for someone's heart to be hardened in biblical terms. What they're hearing (coughs) and what they're learning (coughs) They're not putting it into action. Now, brothers and sisters, it's easy to have a hard heart. Can we just talk as friends here for a moment? It's possible, it's possible to go to a church just like Grace Fellowship for 20 years, 20 years, and listen to the Bible taught, participate in wonderful worship services, and still have no idea how to bring God into the situations on Monday morning in your business, in your family life, in your parenting, in your relationships, in your finances, and so on. 
I meet Christians all the time. Seriously. Christ followers, they've been for years. They may have hung out in the church even for decades, and they hit a crisis, and they have no more resources than their next-door neighbor has who's not even a believer. You say, oh, that's, that's harsh. No, it's not harsh. We, we always keep it real around here. We've got to keep it real. It's not harsh at all. Dear friends, we can be professing disciples and live like practical atheists day by day. So here's the deal. Here's the deal. You gotta love Simon Peter. You gotta love the guy. He was a plane that was willing to fly. Yes, that's when the plane's most vulnerable. When it's flying, safest place is to stay right there on the tarmac. You won't expose yourself to too much danger there, maybe a little rust. And that's what 11 out of 12 disciples did. Think about it. Do the math. Pretty high ratio. 11 out of 12, just safe in the boat. Dry-headed disciples, they were. And there was one, just one wet-headed disciple. And I'm just saying to you, I don't know what you would choose but I choose to be a wet-headed disciple any day of the week. Dry-headed disciple, look, let's just keep it right here on the ground. Let's just keep it safe. Let's just hold on for dear life. Let's just pray that God will still this storm and get us through it so we can get a good night's sleep. Wet-headed disciple says, Jesus, this is awesome. Would you... Would you call me to get out there with Yeah, I'm scared to death. But would you call me to get out there with you on the water? I want to get in on your victory. That's what Peter said. And that's what Peter did. Now, I want to tell you something. If that's you, if you choose to live that way in obedience and faith like Peter, you're going to sink once in a while. You're going to get it wrong once in a while. You're going to stop trusting once in a while. You're going to stop trusting and start sinking and get afraid. And the Lord's going to say, oh, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? Listen, let's learn from this. Let's tuck this experience under our belt here. And the next time, trust me fully. I got this. Years later, years later, Peter wrote a letter we call it the book of 1 Peter in our Bible. He wrote a letter to a community of Christians who were really, really struggling as they went through horrendous storms. And you know what? Peter can write words of confidence and encouragement and tell them to hang in there and hold on to the Lord. You know why? Because he learned that you can count on God. Even though he faltered, you, he learned you can count on God and trust him in the storm. Oh, brothers and sisters, it's very risky for planes to fly. But that's what they're made for. And you and I were made to step out in faith and experience God in awesome ways that we never will if we stay dry-headed in the boat. Father, would you call us out of the boat today? Would you bid us come and follow you on the water? Storm's real. The dangers are huge. 
we're not adequate. These waves threaten to be over our heads and sink us and send us to the bottom. Would you give us the mentality of a wet-headed disciple? Call us out of our comfort. Call us out. Teach us how to soar. Teach us how to walk on the water with you. May we learn to say thank you, Jesus. You got this. The very thing that threatens to be over my head, hallelujah, is under your feet. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. I'd like to invite our um, offering team to come forward as we continue to worship through our tithes and offerings. I think maybe Pastor Rex coined a new term, a wet-headed disciple. Never heard that before, but... <laughs> 